Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. case that I just need to get right into it. Skip all that banter. Let's go. (laughs) Aye, aye, Captain. (laughs) But first we'll say welcome listeners. We're glad that you're checking us out today. Absolutely. If you've been with us before, then you know that we both love true crime and we'll take you through a case today. And if this is your first time checking us out, welcome. Buckle up, buttercup, because you picked a good case for your first one. (laughs) Today's case is actually kind of gruesome. That's your disclaimer then, that this is going to be a gruesome case? Yeah. I do actually put a warning in my notes right before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, but it's pretty intense. Not necessarily that it's so gruesome, but it is pretty horrific what these dirtbags do. I was listening to a podcast, uh, True Crime All the Time, last night, Mm -hmm. and one of their listeners had sent in a, I guess they do like a telephone message. And anyway, they had asked them, okay, what have been your three hardest cases to cover? And these two men, these burly men listed off these cases and they're like we cannot get them out of our head and they said the same thing as as us is like sometimes you're spending so much time researching these people that you are like right in their heads and it can be a lot to take in it can yeah especially when you're in the gruesome details for weeks on end well and today we're going to be talking about two of them two dirt bags double feature that's right so it's double information in my brain with these oh. ones and you all know that i'm always super intrigued about couple killers how the stars align and two dirt bags happen to meet one day and then decide to go on a torturous rampage the next. And that is exactly what happens in today's case. These ones are always so fascinating because how do you get those two minds to be thinking the same thing and agree to do the same stuff? Exactly. Yeah. It's just as bewildering to me. We'll be discussing the disturbing events that took place by the hands of two American serial killers who rape, torture, and murder five teenage girls in 1979 in Southern California. If anyone were to ask me about a time and place where it seemed like serial killers ran amok, I would definitely say California in the 70s and maybe even the 80s. Absolutely. That's when so many of them operated. Some of the really notorious serial killers, it seems like they all were killing in California in the 70s. Some of them in the 80s, but... (laughs) So what do you think was going on then? I don't know. I guess, well, even in this case, hitchhiking was still a thing back then. Absolutely. Lots of hitchhikers. Yes, you've got your free-loving hippies and moving all around the country. In California is such a warm climate that you can do that all the time. All year round. Not like in Canada. Where yeah. You would freeze. <laughs> literally. <laughs> you only hitchhike for the two months of the year that That's we have right. some nice weather. And if they're breaking into houses, do they do that? Not these all? guys. No. But a lot in the 70s did. Yeah. I think people were just probably more generally trusting in the 70s. For sure. And there wasn't the technology that there is today for people to be worried about getting caught as easily either. No, there definitely wasn't the evidence or even the digital footprint. For sure. And I think too... If I remember correctly, in the 1990s, that's when the victimization of sex trade workers really picked up. And I think it was because there was less hitchhikers and home security systems were really taking off in the 90s. And so your whole vulnerable population changed. It's unfortunate, but yeah, it does make sense. So California actually still remains the hottest bed for serial killers, but Florida and Texas run a close second and third. However, Alaska actually wins for murders per capita, even though they have a significantly lower count. Oh, that is actually not surprising to me. Alaska, we've talked about before, is just that prime location for somebody to go missing and nobody follows up with them. Yeah, it's a little scary. California in the 70s and 80s and 
unfortunately brought us the Night Stalker, the Golden State Killer, the Hillside Stranglers, and the Scorecard Killer. But have you heard about the Toolbox Killers? No. Well, that's who we're going to talk about today. They're the dirtiest of bags. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. They are given the nickname Toolbox Killers because the tools they use to torture and kill their victims are items that could be found in an everyday toolbox. Oh, that's a little disturbing. It really is. Especially when your husband's a contractor. I know. (laughs) I never even made that connection. (laughs) How many toolboxes do you have in the garage, Christy? Our garage is just full of tools. (laughs) They're not tools anymore. Now they're torture weapons. That's right. I won't be looking at them in the same way. I will first tell you a little bit of history about each of them, and then we will get into their crimes that they commit together. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker, later proudly nicknamed Pliers, and you'll find out why. Pliers? Oh, I can already imagine the stuff that you could do. Do with pliers? (laughs) I know. These guys are bad. He was born on September 27th, 1940 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His birth parents never wanted to have children, so he was placed in an orphanage by his birth mom. Lawrence was adopted as an infant by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker. His father, George, were worked in the aviation industry, which caused them to have to move around the United States quite a bit during his childhood. So no stability. No. They went from Pennsylvania to Florida to Ohio, and eventually they settled in California. Lawrence started to get into trouble at a young age. He would go on to create quite a long rap sheet for himself. He began shoplifting at age 12 and was arrested multiple times over the next four years for repeated offenses. Lawrence later explained that he started stealing to compensate for the lack of love that he received from his parents. That was his own assessment. That was, yeah. Okay. He was trying to fill that void, and so stealing helped to fill that for him. It's an interesting take. But a believable one. Yeah, totally believable. But we rarely come across somebody that's psychoanalyzing themselves. Well, for sure. But he was actually said to have super intelligence. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is actually just what we're about to lead into. But I thought it does make sense to compensate because sometimes, like, if we're lonely, we eat. Or, you know, we do different things to fill those. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So because of his super intelligence, school became tedious to him. So at age 17, in 1957, Lawrence dropped out of high school. His IQ, though, was 138. That is amazing. It is. It's actually considered to be on the gifted level. It's and so that's high. why he was feeling so bored in school. Yeah. Is they weren't challenging him. Yeah. Which also makes me feel like at that young age, he could recognize why he was he doing was, that. Yeah, he was introspective. Mm-hmm. Einstein's IQ was guessed to be around 160. Ooh, wow. So a score of 135 or above puts a person in the 99th percentile of a population. Wow. So that was Lawrence Bittaker then because he was at 138. I know we've talked about this before, but it's so sad when we have these super smart people that could have done so many other things. Yeah. After we finished the Shelly Notech case, I was thinking, man, imagine if she was in sales. Oh, that would have been incredible. (laughs) Right? She could have sold you the jacket you were wearing, I'm sure, because she was such a manipulator. Yeah. Also at age 17, Lawrence started to get into some more serious trouble. Well, if you're bored all the time. Yeah, for sure. You're going to find something to entertain yourself. He was incarcerated for two years in the California Youth Authority after stealing a car, causing a hit and run, and then evading arrest. Oh, no. The same year he was released, he was sentenced to a federal reformatory in Oklahoma for interstate motor vehicle theft. However, he only did six months of his 18-month sentence. In December 1960, he was arrested in L.A. for robbery. And by May of 1961, he was sentenced to a 1 to 15 year in a state prison. What? Yeah. That's a big range. 1 to 15 years. I guess it was because he's younger and we'll let you out when we feel like you're ready to be let out type of (laughs) thing. And who is judging that? I don't know. There's so many other things to look into with him. I didn't really look into that one robbery case. (laughs) 
While in prison, he was diagnosed as borderline psychotic and basically paranoid. He was said to be manipulative and had a great deal of pent-up hostility, and it was noted that he had poor control of impulse behavior. Oh, wow. So does that mean that if he was psychotic, then was he having like hallucinations and delusions? It didn't say that, but it did say that he was paranoid. Yeah. Right? So that could Could have have tied in together. Led into it. Having a psychosis or being psychotic is different than being a psychopath. Yeah. He was released in 1963 just to be arrested two months later for a parole violation and suspected robbery and was jailed again in 1964. This cycle of getting arrested, sentenced to prison, released on parole, and then re-arrested would repeat another three times over the next seven years. He definitely was one of those who fell through the cracks of the justice system. And maybe his disturbing crimes to come could have been avoided if he hadn't been released over and over again. Because he kept getting arrested while on parole. And then they would give him parole again. Which is so crazy. What is the whole point of parole and probation? You should go back in jail. Yeah, and have to serve your full sentence. That's right. Yeah. So Lawrence received further testing during his multiple imprisonments and was again diagnosed with borderline psychosis. However, one doctor diagnosed him as a classic sociopath and said that he had faked his psychotic behavior. And because he's so smart, maybe he had. This change in diagnosis may have made him seem less threatening. Oh. Because sociopaths can have a conscience. That's but right. But psychopaths do not. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So a psychopath knows how to pretend to care, but they actually don't have those genuine emotions, where a sociopath might have some of those genuine emotions. Right. And just yeah. not be able to manage them very well. Exactly. Yeah. Lawrence had bragged to other inmates about how stealing cars made him feel important and how he was misunderstood, mistreated, and falsely accused throughout his life. Oh, that sounds like somebody else we just covered. Mm-hmm. Basil Barutsky. That's why he killed all those women was because of the social injustices that they had committed towards him. Right. And he needed to teach the courts a lesson. Well, this one isn't about teaching the courts a lesson, but definitely. In 1974, his crime escalated from robbery to attempted murder. He had tried to steal a steak from a grocery store by stuffing it down his pants. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I, I gotta bite my tongue on this one. There are so many jokes that I could make right now. I wonder if he'll do hard time for that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. After doing this, a young employee chased him down into the store parking lot. Lawrence stabbed him in the chest, just missing his heart. Oh. Yeah, so this young kid runs after him. He's like, excuse me, sir, I think you forgot to pay for that. And he stabs <laughs> him. down your pants. Yeah. That's what it was reported that he said. And so, yeah, he stabs him in the chest. That's a quick turn to violence. Yeah. What did he stab him with? Was he carrying a knife with him? He must have been. Right. His steak knife. (laughs) (laughs) He was ready to eat. Yeah. He had a steak knife. No, but a lot of guys walk around with a pocket knife. and Yeah, but a pocket knife you're not going to have out ready to stab somebody as they come up to you. Like a pocket knife, you flip it up, right? That's true. And maybe he had time to. Like really, how long does that take to pull that out of your pocket I guess while the guy's maybe. talking to you? If you're super smart, you could do it quickly, I guess. Totally. <laughs> or practiced. And he, maybe every time he stole stuff, maybe he had it ready. Maybe. As a defense. I'm going with a steak knife. He was just getting ready for dinner. <laughs> he had a fork in the other pocket. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We can laugh because the guy survived. (laughs) It's okay. So Lawrence tried to flee, but two other employees restrained him and called the police. 
The man luckily survived. Lawrence was sent to the California men's colony at San Luis Obispo for the next four years under the charge of assault with a deadly weapon. This is where he would meet his future partner in crime, Roy Norris. Oh, those jail friends are not good friends to make. I know. Because that was where Crawford made his best friend, too, that helped him carry out his crimes. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad place to meet. Opportune place for them, but bad place for the rest of us. So before we talk about them meeting, let's first talk a bit about Roy, and then we can pick things back up when Roy and Lawrence meet in prison. Okay. So rewind. (laughs) Okay. That's what we've resorted to here on Married Motive. (laughs) Cheap sound effects and Pepsi. (laughs) Okay. Roy Lewis Norris was born on February 5th, 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. His parents were not married when he was conceived, so they had to get married to avoid the social stigma at the time. Oh, I could see that. Oh, yeah. It would have been super scandalous. Mm -hmm. Roy's grandfather had made some type of real estate investment, so his extended family lived close to one another. Roy's father made his living by working in a scrapyard, and his mother, unfortunately, was a drug-addicted housewife. Oh, no. Opium, right? I don't know. In the 40s and 50s? It didn't say what. There was very little, actually, about his parents. So subsequently, Roy was periodically and repeatedly placed in foster care. He remembers being wrongfully accused of things while living with his family and then being neglected and denied sufficient clothing and food while living in foster care. Roy also claimed that he was sexually abused in one particular foster home, which he stated later would cause him to have a prejudice towards their race. At age 16, during one of the times that he was living at home, Roy visited a female relative who was in her early 20s at the time. He started to talk to her in a sexually aggressive manner. So he's a creepy dirtbag. Mm. She rightfully threw him out of the house and called his father to tell on him. <laughs> this is her relative who's coming on to her super strong. So yeah, yeah, good for her. Get him out of there and call dad. <laughs> Roy's father threatened to dole out a beating on Roy. So Roy stole his dad's car and fled to the Rocky Mountains. While there, Roy attempted to commit suicide by injecting air into an artery in his arm. Oh. And I thought that was always fatal, is it not? No, you need a lot. Oh, that you? is this common misconception. Oh, okay. People get freaked out all the time when they see air bubbles in their IV lines, but you'd actually need like a whole IV line. It's like at least 50 milliliters of air that you need to be a significant risk. It's actually <laughs> a lot harder to do than oh, okay. what you actually think. Well, thanks for clearing that up for me and our listeners, because I didn't know how much air you'd need in there. And obviously Roy didn't either. He didn't have the same IQ as Lawrence. (laughs) He survived and he was later apprehended as a runaway and returned to his parents. Shortly after this, Roy's parents sat him and his sister down and told them that they never really wanted kids and that they would be getting a divorce. Hmm. Well, that's what happens when you force people to get married when they didn't actually love each other. (laughs) That can. That can happen. Not always. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of arranged marriages that turn out beautifully. Mm -hmm. A year later, when he was 17, Roy also dropped out of high school. In 1969, Roy would begin his deviant behavior. He joined the United States Navy and was stationed in San Diego. He served for four months in Vietnam, although he never saw any combat. He did, however, begin to use marijuana. While stationed in San Diego, Roy was arrested in November of 1969 for attempted rape. He was let out on bail, and while awaiting his trial only three months later, he was arrested again for trying to attack a woman in her home. Thankfully, the police arrived before he could seriously harm her. So does he have some serious sexual deviancies? He does. Oh, that sounds like where we're leading. Yeah, this whole case Mm. is very sexually deviant. Mm. As a result, Roy was discharged from the army due to psychological problems. (laughs) 
<laughs> you're a dirtbag, so That's we need right. to let you go. Well, they had actually diagnosed him with severe schizoid personality. Oh. So, so did he, he go into treatment? No. We don't want you in the army anymore because you might be schizophrenic, but have a good life. Well, he had attacked two women, right? So they're mm-hmm. like, hey, we're discharging you. They did a little bit of an evaluation on him. But yeah, you have psychological problems, like severe schizoid personality. So good luck with those. Yeah, see ya. We just don't want to deal with those. Right. <laughs> But sometimes that diagnosis is half the battle if he had gotten the help afterwards. That, yeah, right? that's what I'm saying. So where's yeah. the follow through on the help, right? Not there. And it's not there. And so then he goes on to do these horrific things. Yeah. But we're not blaming the Navy. You're not. No. <laughs> joke. I'm not blaming the Navy. I'm just thinking so often that happens is you see that people are fully aware that they have psychological issues and we can even get them a diagnosis, but then nothing is ever done about it. And if they are prescribed something, sometimes there's no follow through. That's right. To make sure that they are taking it Mm because the courts had diagnosed Lawrence, right? Mm -hmm. And then the Navy is diagnosing Roy. In May of 1970, while again out on bail, Roy attacked another woman, a female student at the San Diego State University. He jumped her from behind, hit her on the head with a rock, and then proceeded to repeatedly slam her head into the concrete. The woman amazingly survived, and Roy was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He was sent to the Atascadero State Hospital as a sex offender and spent the next five years there. He was released on probation as the doctors believed he was no longer a threat or dangerous to others. And this hindsight is always so frustrating. So I wonder what led to that determination. He was just a nice guy while he was there. Probably followed the rules. And if he was receiving treatment, he probably was doing okay. Unfortunately, though, Roy was only out for three months before he struck again. This time raping a 27-year-old woman. He had tried to get her to go with him on his motorcycle, but when she declined, he grabbed the scarf around her neck and started to twist it as he drug her into nearby bushes and then raped her. She was too frightened to resist, but she was later able to identify Roy by his motorcycle. He was convicted of forcible rape and sent to the California men's colony at San Luis Obispo, the same facility that was housing Lawrence Bittaker. And what was his sentence that time? Because he committed pretty much the same crime within three months of being released after five years of rehabilitation. So you think that they would give him a way longer sentence this time? No, not really. These guys, both of them, spend so much time in jail, then they go out on parole, then they go back into jail, they get out on parole. And both of them, while in the California men's colony, they get out on parole. So I don't know if it was just easier back then to get out on parole. I'm not sure. But I did want to note here that I noticed that they had some significant parallels in their lives. Both dropped out of school at the age of 17. Both felt that they had been repeatedly falsely accused of things. They had each been in and out of jail and had multiple arrests. And I just covered a few of them. They were both diagnosed with mental health concerns and both ultimately felt unwanted by their parents. All these things in common may have helped to bond them. Which is interesting because those are the things that we were talking about earlier, those traits of serial killers. Mm -hmm. So the pair met in prison in 1977, a year after Roy arrived. Lawrence thought that Roy was a savvy guy who associated with hardened criminals and dealt with contraband drugs. They started to talk and Roy began teaching Lawrence how to make jewelry. Oh, which is so (laughs) random. I was thinking arts and crafts prison style. These hardened criminals making jewelry in prison. It was just a funny visual for me. It totally is. Yeah, because they have to keep them busy. Yeah. And so they do. They do arts Arts and and crafts. crafs. That's interesting. Yeah. By 1978, the pair were inseparable, claiming they were soulmates. 
Oh. So you were talking about how do they get together and do this type yeah. of thing? Because usually, you know, a sexual relationship or that love relationship will bind you together even more. But these guys claim that they were actually soulmates. And I thought friends can totally be soulmates. And it's just yeah. unfortunate that these two dirtbags would become as such. So they found their soulmates in one another. It's not very often, though, that you hear men claiming to have a soulmate in a same-sex friend. Because I've often heard that from girls. Yeah, it's definitely more common in females than it would be Mm -hmm. in males. But But Lawrence was this guy that was very in tune with who he was. And yeah, Roy wasn't too much of a hot shot to not sit down and make some jewelry and so and like I said I had noticed those parallels that they had and so they had a lot of things to bond them together they Mm -hmm. would have really understood one another yeah Roy said that Lawrence saved his life twice while in prison and that this bound him to him it was like a prisoner's code Mm. it didn't take long for the pair to realize that they both had an interest in sexual violence and misogynistic views Which is so crazy because like you and I have a mutual like of true crime or locked rooms, but their mutual interest is rape. Yeah, crazy. What a thing to bond over. Mm. Roy told Lawrence that he would get stimulated from seeing frightened young women and that is why he had such a lengthy sexual assault record. He liked that fear. Lawrence hadn't committed a sexual assault yet, but said that if he did, he would murder her so that she couldn't identify him. Oh, there's the brains of the The operation. Yep. Roy and Lawrence made plans to connect once they were both released to rape and murder teenage girls. What? Their goal was to victimize one girl of every teenage year from ages 13 to 19. Dirtbags. Awful. Isn't that terrible? That was their goal. This is why inmates should not be allowed to have friendships in jail. That's right. You play canasta and keep your mouth quiet. Yeah. You're not allowed to talk. (laughs) Could you imagine the two of them just over in like, the jail yard yeah sitting at a picnic table just doing their jewelry together planning like oh will you like to hold them this way will you rape them well that's good i thought about this way yeah and then we'll kill her after yeah that is bizarre isn't it so bizarre it's like you and i planning a weekend getaway like when we get out this is what we'll do (laughs) but yeah ladies and gentlemen make better goals Mm mm-hmm Lawrence was released first on November 15th, 1978, and began preparing for their sadistic plan. He got a job and purchased a creepy murder van. The kidnapper van? The kidnapper, exactly. The white one with no windows? It's silver. Oh. So it looks white. Yep. It was a 1977 GMC cargo van that he named Murder Mac. And all girls were all leery of these types of vans. Well, no, not in this time period. We're leery of them now because of this time period. Exactly. It had a large sliding door on the passenger side, which meant they could get close to their victims and grab them easily if they wanted to. So this was totally thought out. It was. Yeah, he picked out this van because it would make kidnapping easier. Crazy. Two months after Lawrence's release, Roy was released on January 15th, 1979. Roy moved in with his mother and also found employment. In February of 1979, Lawrence wrote a letter to Roy to arrange a meeting for them at a cheap hotel in downtown Los Angeles. It sounds like he's the brains behind the operation Mm -hmm. because he's the one initiating like, hey, we're going to get together. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to buy this van. And the other guy's just along for the ride. Oh, I feel like he's an equal participant. Okay. But Lawrence does actually take things a little bit further, which is surprising because he doesn't start off as the sexual deviant and he's ruthless Mm. in their escapades. Roy met up with Lawrence and they both agreed that their plan was still a go. From February to June of that year, the pair searched for a place to kill the women that they planned to kidnap. Children. Yeah, children. Young girls. Yeah. Teenagers. 
They decided on a place deep in the San Gabriel Mountains on a fire road. Lawrence broke off the lock to the road and replaced it with one of his own. During this time, they picked up over 20 female hitchhikers, not to assault them, but as practice to see what ruses would lure the girls into their van voluntarily. This is so bizarre. Yeah, so cunning and so calculated. Yeah. Like, and patient, right? We're going to take our time. We're going to practice this. So we get it right. So yeah. the police don't catch us. I think they would have gone on a lot longer if they didn't deviate from their plans with their last victim, which we oh. see sometimes in serial killers. Yeah. Thankfully, they do. And that's what gets them caught. The pair decided that they were ready to execute their plan. I will take you through what happens with each girl. And like we kind of warned at the beginning, it is pretty disturbing, but I thought it was important to tell each of their stories. So they don't have a similar MO for each one? They do, but it varies. Okay. Yeah. Some things are very similar and ritualistic and other things are not. So they adapted to each girl. Yeah. And wanted to try new things. Oh. And I feel like they got worse and worse as Mm -hmm. well as they went on. Things would escalate. On June 24th, 1979, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris found their first victim, 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. Before heading out that day, the pair prepared the van for action. They finished the construction of the bed that they had installed in the back. They placed tools underneath the bed along with clothing and a cooler full of beer and pop. So they made it so that their tools were handy while they had her in bed? Yeah, so they could reach under the bed. The tools are all there. They've got a cooler if they get thirsty. So they are very, very calculated. They're thinking of all the details. Around 7.46 p.m., Roy noticed Lucinda walking down a side street and said to Lawrence, there's a cute little blonde. She was walking home from a meeting that she had attended at a Presbyterian church in Redondo Beach. They tried to entice Lucinda into the van with the promise of weed and a ride home, but she refused. They picked a church-going girl. She was walking home from church. So she's like, no thanks. So they drove up ahead of her and parked Murder Mac alongside a driveway and waited. How creepy would that have been to be like, no thanks, I don't want to go in your creepy van. But then to walk around the corner and there it is again, further up the road. Right. And I think especially as girls, we are taught to be polite. Mm -hmm. So it would have seemed rude to, you know, run down a different street. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Always trust your instincts. When Lucinda got to the van, Roy was able to snatch her through the passenger sliding door. Lawrence cranked up the music and started to drive away as Roy bound her wrists and ankles and duct taped her mouth closed. This would become a routine for them. Well, because Roy's already good at binding people. He's already practiced. Yeah, he's had experience in women. this. Yeah. yeah. And Lawrence would crank up the music so you so couldn't hear the hurts. screams and stuff and he would drive away. They drove her to the Fire Mountain Road that they had picked out earlier. When they stopped the van, Roy instructed Lawrence to take a walk and return in an hour while he raped Lucinda. So here's Roy telling Lawrence, right? So it's not that one's in control of the other. When Lawrence returned, Roy went for a walk so that Lawrence could have his turn raping her. While Lawrence was raping her, Lucinda asked him if they intended to kill her and he said no. Lucinda pleaded that if they did, she only asked that she would be allowed a moment to pray beforehand. Oh no. Lawrence later wrote in his account of the incident that Lucinda, quote, displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. In this statement, is this like while he's keeping a journal or is this like when he gets caught in his confession? When he's caught. Okay. Yeah. He actually tries to later, I didn't even put this in here, but he actually tries to kind of write, not like a book, but yeah, like a memoir. So the dirtbags did not grant her last wish. They did not give her that moment to pray. What? Mm -hmm. Would have been an easy thing to do. Yeah. Roy attempted to strangle Lucinda with his bare hands. 
after about 45 seconds, he became so unsettled by the look in her eyes that he ran to the front of the van to vomit. Oh, Lawrence stepped in and started to strangle the young girl until she fell to the ground and started to convulse. He then continued to twist a wire coat hanger around her neck with a vice grip pliers until she died. How horrific for her. I wonder if she thought when Roy gave up, we're like, oh, maybe I am going to live. Yeah. And then Lawrence is like, oh, I'll finish it off. Because Lawrence was the one who said he wanted to murder his victims if he was going to rape them. And he had already stabbed that grocery store clerk. Yeah. They wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain and threw her off a steep canyon. Lawrence assured Roy that, quote, the animals would eat her up so there wouldn't be any evidence left. Well, they had picked out this perfect place where no one could hear their screams. They could rape, they could murder, and they could dispose of the bodies all in one stop. Are there many places like that in California? In the mountainish areas, I guess. Yeah. Two weeks later, on July 8th, 1979, Roy and Lawrence set their sights on their next victim, 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. They found her hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. This time, Roy hid in the back of the van so that Andrea would think that Lawrence was all alone. Andrea got into the van, and Lawrence offered her a drink from the cooler that they had in the back. Roy was hiding, so when Andrea went to the back of the van to grab a drink, he jumped out and grabbed her. They struggled a little, but Roy was ultimately able to twist her arm behind her back, causing her to scream out in pain. He proceeded to bind her wrists and ankles and duct tape her mouth, as he had with Lucinda. They drove her to the same San Gabriel Mountains, and once there, they took turns raping her, once by Roy and twice by Lawrence. While Lawrence was raping her for the second time, Roy thought he saw oncoming headlights. So Lawrence drug her into nearby bushes, and Roy drove around trying to find the vehicle that he thought he had seen, but to no avail. Being a little spooked, they collected Andrea back into the van and drove further into the mountains. Lawrence made Andrea get out of the van and walk uphill naked, and then perform oral sex on him. Afterwards, he forced her to pose as he took Polaroid pictures of her. Oh, that's not very smart. That's a whole bunch of evidence. I thought he was a smart guy. But when you're that smart too, you think you're untouchable. And a lot of these guys think that, right? I'm smarter than you. You're not going to catch me. Yep. I can do whatever I want because I'll know how to get out of it. Yeah. You're not going to catch me in the first place. Yeah. They then drove her to a third location where Lawrence again made Andrea climb another hill while Roy went to go buy more alcohol. When Roy returned, Lawrence was alone. He had taken two additional photos of Andrea. Roy later described the look on Andrea's face as sheer terror. Lawrence had taken them as she begged for her life. Lawrence had told Andrea that he was going to kill her and asked her to provide him with as many reasons as she could why he shouldn't. Sadly, no reason would be good enough to stop what he would do next. Lawrence took an ice pick and shoved it into her ear, entering her brain. He turned her over and thrust the same ice pick into her other ear, but this time he stomped on it until the handle broke, leaving the pick in her head. He proceeded to strangle her and then threw her lifeless body off a cliff like they had done to Lucinda. The next time these dirtbags would strike was on September 3, 1979. They found their third and fourth victim sitting on a bus stop near Hermosa Beach. Jackie Doris Gilliam was 15 years old and Leah Lamp was only 13. Oh, So they really are hitting all the ages. They're trying to, yeah. And the thing with that, too, is they don't know their ages right away. So because they don't know when they pick them up, you don't wear a sign with your age. So who knows how long they would have continued till they reached that goal. Did they turn anybody away, like get them in the van, try to kidnap them and be like, oh, oh, no, I already have a 16 year old. No way. No, they do a repeat age. Oh, OK. Yeah. But could have taken them a long time yeah. to get all those ages because it's hard to tell when you look at young girls. Absolutely. Some look older than they are. Some look way younger than they are. And Leah Lamp is the youngest. She was mm-hmm. 13. 
The men offered the young girls a ride to the beach and marijuana to smoke. Tragically, the two girls accepted the offer. Oh, no. The girls started to smoke once in the van, but soon realized that they were driving in the wrong direction to get to the beach. And can you imagine the fear that they would have felt when you realized, wait, we're not going towards the beach. Leah tried to open the sliding door, so Roy hit her on the back of the head with a lead weight, rendering her unconscious. He overpowered Jackie and started to bind and gag her when Leah regained consciousness and tried to escape again. Roy was able to stop her by twisting her arm behind her back. Lawrence noticed what was happening on the back of the van, so he pulled over and punched Jackie in the face and helped Roy finish binding and gagging the two girls. Do you think it would be more terrifying to be by yourself and have this done to you or to watch your friend be tortured as well? I don't know. To watch something and be like, oh, that's coming for me next. I don't know. You would have some comfort, I think, of being together, but then you would have that extra terror and fear seeing what's happening. Yeah. I don't know. Because at least with somebody else, you're increasing your chance of escaping or getting away or... Not that I would want somebody yeah. that I care about to be with me in no, that. No, and but, that's what I'm thinking. Is yeah. like I don't think that I would want somebody else to be with me. Well, and then I think of my daughters. Absolutely, I'd rather be alone. Yeah. Right? That would make me a hundred times more fearful if I was with my daughters. Yes. Yeah. I think I would choose to be alone. Well, you're a brave one. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate that people do go through this fear. Yeah. And we don't really talk about that a lot, like how this would have felt for them. No. So they drove the girls to the same mountains and held them captive there for almost two days where these girls would experience true hell on earth. Roy and Lawrence repeatedly raped and tortured both girls. They took turns sleeping beside the girls while the others stayed watch. Lawrence made Leah go to a nearby hill and forced her to pose in pornographic ways while he took more Polaroid pictures. He also had Roy take pictures of himself with Jackie, both clothed and naked. Lawrence also created a tape recording of himself raping Jackie and making her pretend that she was his cousin, encouraging her to express her pain. So he had a thing for his cousin? This was a fantasy of his. I'm shocked. Like, I would have thought that would have been Roy. Yeah, me too. Because of that previous experience. Yeah, with his family member. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean. Their lives are so parallel. They're just two little peas in a dirty little pod. And these are audio recordings. I know why serial killers keep these mementos, why they take pictures, why they do audio recordings is because they want to relive it again. But I'm just so shocked by it all the time. Like, what was he making? A scrapbook? But I often wonder, too, if they didn't do those things, would their victims increase, like, in number? Oh, because they'd have to commit more crimes because they weren't able to relive it to kind of dissuade those urges in between. Yeah. Because a lot of them will use those mementos and they'll use that to gratify themselves or whatever and to relive the crimes. Mm -hmm. So is that holding off on another victim a little bit longer? Probably. Mm -hmm. Lawrence would stab her breasts with an ice pick and mutilate part of one nipple with his pliers. Oh. Mm -hmm. When it was time to murder the two girls, Roy later claimed that he suggested that Jackie be killed quickly because she had been more cooperative, but that Lawrence said, quote, no, they only die once anyway. He's totally sadistic. He is. Jackie was struck in both ears with an ice pick and then strangled to death with a metal coat hanger. And I'm assuming that he again tightened it with his pliers. pliers. Yeah. Because what was his nickname again? Pliers. Yeah. When it was Leah's turn, Lawrence shouted to her, quote, you wanted to stay a virgin? Now you can die a virgin. And then proceeded to strangle her. He thought she was dead. But when she opened her eyes, Roy joined in and started to bludgeon her to death with a baseball bat as Lawrence continued to strangle her. She was hit on the head with a bat a total of seven times. So they didn't rape her? They did. So I'm not sure why he said that. But she was probably pleading, I'm a virgin. I'm a virgin. She's only 13. So you want to be a virgin while you're going to die. Because I thought that too when I read it. But no, they raped both girls. 
Their lifeless bodies were again ruthlessly discarded over an embankment. 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford would be the killer couple's final victim. They abducted her as she stood outside of a gas station on Halloween night, 1979. Shirley was trying to hitchhike home from a Halloween party in the Sunland Tahonga suburb of the San Fernando Valley. Investigators believe that Shirley accepted the ride offer because she may have recognized Lawrence. From where? He often frequented the restaurant where Shirley waitressed part-time at. Oh. And I did hear some accounts that he had asked her out and she had turned him down. Which rightfully so. He's a grown man and she's a teenage girl. Yeah. She was probably even more like willing to go with him then if like she had seen him around. He frequented this restaurant and she had waitressed there and probably had served him many times. Mm. So it was a familiar face. Yeah. You wouldn't yeah. be as scared of a familiar face. For sure. Even if unless it is he, just someone coming into your work. Unless he sent off those like creepy old man vibes. But I'm assuming that he didn't because she willingly got in the van. Yeah. And it probably put her a little bit at ease. He offered her marijuana, but she declined. They drove her to a secluded street while being bound and gagged with construction tape. Lawrence decided that he wanted to trade places with Roy. So they were starting to drift a little bit from their MO in this case. They didn't drive her out to the mountains. They're staying in a residential area. And now Lawrence is like, you drive. So they're switching things up. So Lawrence is escalating a lot faster than Roy is, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. And he knows this, surely, right? So he's probably like, oh, no, I want oh. this one. And I he want wanted her before. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So Lawrence got into the back of the van with Shirley while Roy drove around aimlessly for over an hour. Lawrence removed the construction tape from Shirley's mouth and legs and began to torment her while recording the entire event's audio. He would slap and punch her and then mock her reactions. He screamed at her to, quote, say something. When she screamed, he instructed her to scream louder. Lawrence would hit her and then say, what's the matter? Don't you like to scream? On the recording, you can hear Shirley pleading with Lawrence saying, no, don't touch me. Lawrence continued to order her to scream, but I imagine her screams came easily as he began to torture her further. He started to beat her with a hammer. He punched her with his fists. He apparently wanted to see if he could punch her breasts back into her chest. What? Yep. And he tortured her with pliers, pausing only to rape and sodomize her. So he is really escalated with this one. On the recording, you can hear the rustle of tools as Lawrence switched between using a sledgehammer and the pliers. Roy later said of the incident that all he could hear were constant screams coming from the back of the van. So wanting his turn, Roy then switched places with Lawrence. He too recorded the sound of his attacks. Roy grabbed the sledgehammer and began smashing Shirley's left elbow. Shirley screamed that he had broken her elbow and begged him to stop. Roy would bring the sledgehammer back down on the same elbow another 25 consecutive times. Ugh. When he was finished, he asked her, what are you sniveling about? When Roy later spoke about the audio recordings that they made of Shirley, he said, quote, We've all heard women scream in horror films. Still, we know that no one is really screaming. Why? Simply because an actress can't produce some sounds that convince us that something vile and heinous is happening. If you ever heard that tape, there is just no possible way that you'd not be crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than a full 60 seconds of it. And apparently this was true according to those who later listened to the tape. After torturing Shirley for approximately two hours, Roy killed her by strangling her with a metal coat hanger, which he tightened with pliers. Once dead, the pair decided to switch things up and leave her body in a bed of ivy on a random lawn in a residential neighborhood, possibly so they could watch her be discovered. A jogger found her mutilated body the next morning. 
An autopsy later revealed that her injuries included sexual violation, strangulation, blunt force trauma to the face, head, breasts, and left elbow. Her l crannon the bony part of the elbow, had multiple fractures. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, partly due to pliers being inserted and pinched and violently pulled inside of her. <gasps> oh, I know. that is awful. When I read that, that made me squirm. Have you ever had your pap test done and they twist? Oh, and yeah. And they catch? Yes. That is awful. It is. Pliers pulling on your finger would hurt. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine. Nope. That is brutal. Her left hand had a puncture wound and a finger on her right hand had been smashed. So I'm assuming those were defensive wounds. On the tape recording near the end, Shirley was screaming for them to just kill her. Finding her body would cause quite the stir as the hillside strangler, Angelo Buono, had just been arrested only a few days prior. Oh, I can totally see how that would happen because people would assume that it followed his M.O., Right. And people would have had a sense of security and a little bit of, okay, we're okay now. They caught one strangler at the time. There's actually two, but they arrested this man who's the hillside strangler. We're all a little bit safer. And then just a few days later to find this woman's body, this girl's body. Who's been strangled. Yeah. So it definitely caused quite the stir. And I think that's kind of what they wanted. They veered from their MO. They didn't throw her off a cliff. They didn't take her to the mountains. They stayed in the residential area and left her on someone's lawn. So they wanted her to be found and they wanted to be able to see the chaos that it would cause. Because they just wanted to produce fear in the community? I guess so. Well, they got off on the fear and the other girls' bodies hadn't been found. So So nobody nobody even knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that's where I mean, if they hadn't veered, who knows how long they could have done this. In November of 1979, Roy would make a mistake that would ultimately get them arrested. While talking with a friend, Joseph Jackson, a guy who he had served time with at the California men's colony, Roy would spill the beans about what he and Lawrence had done. And I wonder if he was trying to brag. It's so bizarre to me. They spent so much time planning, picking out the van, picking out the spot so that nobody would ever know what they were doing. And here they are dumping bodies in a populated area. Yeah. And telling people about it now. Roy does. Yeah. Lawrence doesn't, but Lawrence is smarter. Maybe they're comparing crimes and he's like, well, I can one up you on that. And you wouldn't be expecting somebody that you've done time with to rat you out either, right? So he probably thought he had a confidant. Right. You're bonded that way, right? We served in the same prison together. And he would have known Lawrence probably as well because it's the same prison that Roy and Lawrence met at. Oh. He told him about what they had done to the five girls with specific details about what they had done to Shirley since her body was the only one that had been found at the time. I bet you he told them specific details because the other guy didn't believe him. Because if people at this time are thinking that that body was from the hillside strangler, he would have to prove it to the guy. And this is what her body looked like. And these details haven't been released. And yeah. Roy also told Joseph that they had abducted or attempted to abduct three other young girls who had escaped, one of which they were able to rape first. After hearing what Roy and Lawrence had done, Joseph decided to consult his attorney, who advised him to go to the police. And thankfully, Joseph agreed, and he went to the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department. That would be a huge step for a previous convict to go and trust the police. Yeah, and I don't know what he was doing time for, but I'm glad that he had enough sense to say, this is not cool. Like, this is not okay. It was too much of a dirtbag move for him. I don't know if the parole was the same as now, how you can't associate with other parolees or convicts. Yeah, I don't know. You know, and so maybe he was worried about getting in trouble for that. 
So after going to the LAPD, they turned the case over to the Hermosa Beach Police. Why? I guess it would have been their district. I'm not sure. Yeah. But they do a fine job. So it's okay. okay. The information that Joseph gave to the police matched the missing persons report as well as the report attack of the rape victim who had managed to escape the evil grip of the murderous duo. This woman was Robin Robeck. Roy and Lawrence had sprayed her in the face with mace, drug her into the van, and raped her before she was able to escape. When police went to speak with Robin, she was immediately able to pick Roy and Lawrence out of mugshots shown to her by the investigators, but was later unable to pick them out of a lineup, so they wouldn't be charged with her rape, unfortunately. Police had witnessed Roy dealing in marijuana, and Lawrence was found with it in his possession at the time of his arrest, so both were able to be held on charges of parole violation. Remember, both dirtbags were supposed to be in prison at this time, but had been let back into society on parole, which is so frustrating when this happens. They shouldn't have even been able to be together and to even do this. They should have been in the slammer. It makes you question why do they have options like parole? Because so many times it doesn't work. Right. Sometimes it does. But when these guys have broken parole over and over Over and and over over and over again, multiple times, not once or twice, but multiple times each, Mm -hmm. they shouldn't be let out on parole. No. They need to serve some time. Upon searching Lawrence's van, Murder Mac, the police found the Polaroid pictures of Jackie and Andrea, the sledgehammer, a plastic bag filled with lead weights that had been used as a weapon, a book about how to locate police radio frequencies, a jar of Vaseline, two of the victim's necklaces, and a tape recording of Shirley's torture and sexual abuse. And Shirley's mother had to identify her daughter's voice on that tape. And I thought, how horrific. But they had to have someone close to her ID her as the victim on the tape. And I cannot even imagine. Which is so sad because they say that a person's voice is one of the first things you forget. But that isn't a memory that you're going to forget. No, that is going to be ingrained into her memory. That poor mom. They also found a type of acid that the men were planning to use on their next victim. Inside Roy's apartment, they found a bracelet that had belonged to Shirley And at both of their homes, police confiscated nearly 500 Polaroid pictures taken of mostly unsuspecting young girls at the Burbank High School. So that was during that practice time when they were picking up girls and just seeing what would lure and what would work them. And they started taking all these Polaroids of these girls. Could you imagine finding out your child's picture had been amongst those? No. No. You wouldn't want to be any degree of separation from these guys. No. One of the pictures found suggested that the pair may have had a six murder victim, but police were never able to identify the girl. And of course, no body was found. At first, Roy tried to deny everything, but when he saw the evidence stacked up against him, he decided to confess. Although he tried to make it sound like Lawrence was more culpable in the murders than he was. Roy was described as casual and in an unconcerned manner while being questioned by the police. He said that the acts of torture and humiliation had been committed against their victims for fun. Oh, find a better pastime. Yeah. Roy surprisingly agreed to take investigators to the San Gabriel Mountains to search for the four missing bodies. On February 9th, 1980, the skeletonized bodies of Leah and Jackie were found. The ice pick was still lodged in Jackie's skull. Unfortunately, the bodies of Lucinda and Andrea were never found. Roy and Lawrence were charged with the five murders of the five girls. Lawrence was denied bail, but Roy's was set at $10,000. And I was like, what? But I guess because he had confessed. Oh, 
A month after being charged, Roy agreed to a plea bargain that would spare him the death penalty and life without parole if he testified against his partner in crime and soulmate, Lawrence. So maybe they're not soulmates after all, then, if he's willing to turn him in. And he knows that parole works, right? Yeah. But did his new sentence include parole then? Yeah, it does. So then that's totally why he was going for it. Yeah, because he knew, like, oh, I'll just get out on parole because that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Prior to his sentencing, a probation officer testified about Roy saying, quote, he never exhibited any remorse or compassion about his brutal acts towards the victims. The defendant appears compulsive in his need to inflict pain and torture upon women. He also said that Roy, quote, can realistically be regarded as an extreme sociopath whose depraved pattern of behavior is beyond rehabilitation. So that would tell me that you don't get parole. Right. And he doesn't. Okay, good. Yeah, he doesn't get okay. parole. On May 7th, 1980, Roy Norris was sentenced to 45 years to life imprisonment with eligibility for parole in 2010, which was denied. That doesn't make any sense to me then because the judge said that he was beyond rehabilitation and yet they still gave him the opportunity for parole. That was part of his plea to turn on Lawrence. But I'm wondering if they were in the back of their minds thinking, but yeah, good luck, buddy. No one's going to ever give you parole. Maybe that's why they made such a strong statement against his rehabilitation then. Right. So he was denied the parole in 2010. And then he applied for parole again just in 2019. So not that long ago. And he was denied that parole as well. Good. He doesn't deserve parole. The following year, Roy died in prison at the age of 72 on February 24th, 2020, so just fairly recently, at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. Lawrence, on April 24th, 1980, was arraigned on 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder, in addition to a plethora of other charges. Maybe he shouldn't have kept so much photo evidence. Right. Lawrence denied everything, despite the evidence against him. Lawrence's trial would be the first time that California broadcasters and photographers were allowed to record a felony trial without the defendant's permission. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I always like those firsts, yeah. you know, when we get to find out about those. His trial started on January 19th of 1981. Roy was the star witness against him. However, even more damning than Roy's testimony was the audio recording of Shirley's abuse. Yeah, because you don't keep that evidence. The court played a 17-minute segment, and how horrible that would have been for everyone involved. Everyone except for Lawrence, who reportedly had been playing the tape over and over in his van for days prior to his arrest, saying it was, quote, real funny. What What a a dirtbag. Yeah, what a piece of crap this guy is, honestly. Well, and I thought Roy was like, nobody could listen to it for more than 60 seconds. Yeah, that's what Roy said, but Lawrence was able to. He was listening to it on repeat. And I don't know if Roy had a hard time listening to it. He just said that anybody would have a hard time listening to it. Okay. Right? Because remember, he got off on the fear and the screams. Those poor people in that courtroom. Yeah. There's usually family members there. And I don't know if they had excused them during that time. Maybe. Hopefully. Yeah, but it was reported that many of the people in the courtroom, including the prosecutor himself, openly wept. And some even had to exit the room while the audio was played. It was said that hearing that tape would change you forever. Lawrence testified on his own behalf and made the most dirtbag claims of his innocence. The prosecutor stated that he wished Lawrence would have to endure the pain and suffering that he caused to his victims and referred to this case as, quote, one of the most shocking, brutal cases in the history of American crime. And I think I said this a few episodes ago that that should be your punishment. Whatever you do, like in a murder case, that's how you should be put to death. I think it would deter a lot of people. 
A forensic psychiatrist said that Roy and Lawrence, quote, lacked the internal prohibitions or conscience that keep most of us from giving full expression to our most primitive and sometimes violent impulses. Lawrence Bittaker was found guilty of the charges against him and was sentenced to death. In the event that his sentence could one day be reverted to life imprisonment, the judge imposed an alternative sentence of 199 years and four months imprisonment to take immediate effect. So I loved this. And four months. I'm not sure how they... I'm sure it was by the maximum of all these different charges. That's what it would have probably worked out to. But I thought, rock star judge, like, I'm going to think ahead here in the case that your death gets stayed. This is the alternative sentence that will go into effect immediately. Then you get that back up and yeah. good on the judge for sure i love that when i yeah. read that lawrence actually died of natural causes in prison while awaiting his execution on december 13th 2019 so again just recently at the age of 79 inside the san quentin prison in california wow i just am shocked that it took them that long to execute him well they didn't he died of natural no yeah. I, but like yeah why did it take them that long and that would have taken like what almost 40 years for him to just pass away of natural causes yeah even if he appeals those he's still 199 years in prison and so he's never getting out just put him to death (laughs) save your taxpayers some money I've actually heard and I don't know if it's true but I've heard it's more expensive sometimes and I don't know up to how many years but to actually execute someone than to keep them on death row oh really yeah it's got to be more than what it costs for execution that's what I originally thought but I did read that somewhere once I don't know if there is validity to it or not cite your source christy okay (laughs) that seems crazy to me okay look it up let's go down this little rabbit hole okay says much to the surprise of many who logically would assume that shortening someone's life should be cheaper than paying for it until natural expiration it turns out that it's actually cheaper to imprison someone for life than it is to execute them in fact almost 10 times cheaper wow that is just so shocking to me that doesn't make a lot of sense yeah hold on every state that has the death penalty also has an intricate system on the basis for appeals so here's your cravat then it's actually the appeals that cost all the money so that when there's a death sentence handed out, they have to go through so many appeals. Well, that makes sense. Some estimate it that it costs U.S. taxpayers between 50 to $90 million more per year, <gasps> depending on the jurisdiction, to prosecute a death penalty case than life sentences. Wow. And that's per year that costs? Yeah, that's what they're saying. Wow. Per year. Oh, that's crazy. Well, there we go. We learned something new. So before we end this case, I just had to do this. I want wanted to mention FBI special agent criminal <gasps> profiler John Douglas your hero Ta-da-da. <laughs> Remember him and how I fangirled over him in an earlier case? Yes. Well, he was actually involved in this case. At the time, he said that Lawrence Bittaker was the most disturbing individual for whom he had ever created a criminal profile. Oh, and that's saying something because he's worked on so many cases. all the prolific ones. So I just had to mention him. Also, while actor Scott Glenn was preparing for his role as an FBI profiler in the Silence of the Lambs movie, he visited the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico, Virginia. The legendary profiler John Douglas gave Scott Glenn a tour of the facility. John Douglas let Glenn listen to the Bitteker and Norris tapes, and when he left Douglas's office, he was in tears. He told reporters that he entered the office as a death penalty opponent, and he left staunchly in favor of capital punishment. Oh. So after hearing these tapes, that was enough to change his viewpoint on the death penalty. Wow. And that is the truly disturbing and vile case of two disgusting human dirtbags, Lawrence Bitteker and Roy. Norris. Soulmates. Toolbox killers. I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where like, yeah, that's not so bad. I hope not. (laughs) 
<laughs> then that means that we've desensitized ourselves. Yeah, hopefully not. Right? Well, that's it from us this week. We'll see you next week. We're going to celebrate Christmas with a Grinch that shouldn't have been given the death penalty. Ooh, well, mm-hmm. I'm very intrigued. Yeah, Christmas celebration, buried motive style. <laughs> but until then, have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. There's your Warner. Your Warner. <laughs> that's going in the blooper reel. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm having Pepsi for breakfast because it was a late night. Pepsi in the morning. <laughs> His IQ, though, was 138. Oh, my goodness. 38. 38. <laughs> What's our IQ, Christy? <laughs> Seven. I thought I could do it, but no. Is that a steak in your pocket? Yeah. <laughs> Take another drink of Pepsi. <laughs> that'll help. <laughs> oh, man. My brain might explode today. <laughs> it doesn't say that. Pear prepared. Say that 10 times fast. Redondo beach. I like that word. Redondo. Redondo. Side story. Ooh, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> she has batted her mic away. I punched it. <laughs> Again, so angry about this case. Punch of things. Wreck it, Ralph. <laughs> Wreck it, Christy. Crush it, Christy. Crush it, Christy. Yeah, I like that. That could be my gang name. Yeah. The next time these dirt bikes. The dirt next bikes. dirt bikes. You little brat, because you're younger than me. I hope not, because that means then we've decentralized. Decent, decentralized. A bomb chicka wawa. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.